His books include Coyote, Hate, Stay, and The Job of the Wasp, which was an American Booksellers Association's indie next pick. Wynette's writing has appeared in numerous publications, including Playboy, McSweeney's, The Believer, and the Paris Review Daily. A former bookseller in Texas, Vermont, New York, and California, he is now a writer living in San Francisco. In Users, we meet Miles, a lead creative at a mid-sized virtual reality company known for its quote-unquote original experiences. Miles has engineered a new product called the Ghost Lover. Wildly popular from the outset, the game is simple. A user's simulated life is almost identical to their reality, except they're haunted by the ghost of an ex-lover. However, when a shift in the company's strategic vision puts the ghost lover at the center of a platform-wide controversy, Miles becomes a target of user outrage and starts receiving a series of anonymous death threats. Type notes sealed in envelopes with no postage or return address, these persistent threats push Miles into a paranoid panic, blurring his own sense of reality, catalyzing the collapse of his career, his marriage, and his relationship with his children. The once promising road to success becomes a narrow set of choices for Miles, who, in a last-ditch effort to save his job, pitches his masterpiece, a revolutionary device code named The Egg, which will transform the company. The consequences for Miles seal him inside the walls of his life, as what was once anxiety explodes into devastating absoluteness. In a world rife with the unchecked power and ambition of tech, users investigates with both humor and creeping dread how interpersonal experiences and private decisions influence the hasty developments that have the power to permanently alter the landscape of human experience. Hi, Colin. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Without spoiling, I'd like to address a sort of plot twist that happens later in the novel. Mostly what I want to know is if it was something you set out plotting prior to the write of the book. Because when writers include this kind of unveiling, I'm always curious if the unveiling ever surprises themselves or if anything it sort of focuses as a sort of aim. Um, yeah, I, I think... Um... There, I'm trying to remember who it was. That's why I'm like hesitating here. I think it was, I don't want to say it was Robert Frost, but I was like probably totally wrong. But like the idea of just boiling down to uh, if it doesn't surprise the writer, it won't surprise the reader. And so like I have always kind of written from that place of being like, I know the, the world and the characters and the things I often want to talk about, but like trying not to hold myself to uh, precisely to those things when I'm actually doing the writing, because what I'm looking for is, you know, moments that have energy, moments that excite me, moments that terrify me, moments that activate me in some way. Um, and the hope would be that that activation would be shared by the reader versus me kind of trying to uh, force it to happen to them. You know, um, it's just like, Oh, like this makes me very sad. I will trust that this might make another human sad. Um, Versus like, I really want to write like a sad, I need a sad moment here, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, it's hard. I'm wondering what specific reveal you're talking about. <laughs> Cause I'm like, at the end is like kind of a, a handful. Um, but none of them, nothing that happens in the second half of the book was pre-planned at all. I mean, definitely was, you know, uh, 
reworked to work to like marry to couple well with the beginning and to make sure that the beginning sets everything up well and makes there's a kind of emotional payoff and a, a kind of like a natural build and all that during the editing phase um but in the writing of it like just that first outpouring um where the kind of like schematic of the novel is ultimately laid out for me um yeah it was all just like a total surprise i mean i, I i've talked about this a little bit beforehand like the uh the, I often get the question of like, you know, how do I like want to write a novel about tech? And like, was I sitting out, setting out to do that? Or like, when did it come into, into play? And it was like, literally when I first started writing, I was just writing that opening scene with the family. And I was like, I'm going to write a book about this, like, this just like completely dysfunctional and like entertaining family unit. And then it was like Miles went to work the next day and I was just like, oh, in that work, I guess he's doing X. And then like all of this tech stuff came pouring out. So that was like, I mean, the, the, the majority of what the novel's about was a surprise, frankly, <laughs> not just the, the twists and turns. <laughs> At the outset of the novel, Miles is thinking about a user in this one scene, uh, you know, a man who sort of gets canceled online. A series of private messages are leaked and we learn that this man was messaging underage girls. Uh, Miles mediates on privacy and morality here. You write, It was hard for Miles to argue with the idea of this man having to face consequences for his actions, but this mining of past selves still left him with nightmares of brain surgeons one day isolating his felonious thoughts in the folds of decomposing tissue, the wrinkles in his brain serving as archive to equivalently candid urges that more or less amounted to typo-riddled commons, privately sacred to barely legal teens. Miles honestly didn't know if he was a worse man in his mind than he was in his life. I mean, first of all, that writing is just like incredible. It's so beautiful. Um, But how much of the writing this novel was influenced by guilt? (laughs) At the very least, an interest in guilt, theoretically, right? Uh Yeah. Wow. That's an incredible question. Um, I mean, I guess a huge, a huge amount of it, certainly that passage. I mean, because a big thing that, so it's not a user that is, that is um, in that position that's being described. It's this um, civil rights lawyer who Miles is, who's like runs this um, organization that Miles like is basically been donating to for, for years. And then now there's a scandal and this guy is being sort of exposed and called out. And Miles is going through this process of ultimately realizing um, how much, he's going through this process of like, how much am I like this person? You know, am I as bad as them? Am I better than them in some way? How am I different from them? Is it that I only seem different because my secret parts have not been exposed? And if they are like, am I as bad? Um, And he's kind of going through that, that back and forth that I think like a lot of people go through, um, especially men uh, in like in the modern era where we're just like, Oh, like, are we all fucking monsters? Is it true? You know? Um, and this, uh, this kind of, you know, individual like, moral reckoning um, that, that A is, like, I think, pretty important to do. And then B is also kind of like uh, a, a very big challenge, you know, a very big question, like how, like how you, what kind of, how good of a person am I, right. you know, <laughs> and how do we measure it? Right. You know? Um, can it be measured? Should I even be asking that question? You know, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately Miles gets to this place for me, that was an important thing rather than the kind of those like sort of large questions that can get really abstract and get really swept away too. He arrived at this place of realizing that he'd hung like sort of his entire conscience 
on this figure who he was like, well, that person does good. So I'll send them money. And like, that makes me good. And then that person's real as being bad. And he's like, oh, well, shit. Like, does that mean that I'm bad? You know, <laughs> like, um, does, or, you know, so it's like this, that's the thing he's going through. And for Miles, it was an important term in my mind because uh, I think he gets a lot of opportunities in the book, almost like directly presented to him. Definitely. To, yeah, to like address the issue. Someone's like, here's exactly what you could do for me. You know, and then, you know, and he kind of always turns it back to like, okay, so like, what is great, good to know, what does this have to do with like the initial problem that I brought to you looking for your help with, you know, like, um, and, uh, and so this was this moment where I was like having, I like wanted him to realize that he had, was doing that, of like sort of being like, I'm projecting my like moral responsibilities onto this person who seems to have like more moral authority to me and, um, and just to like have him have to face that before he kind of goes through the rest of the novel, because I'm always looking for ways to be like close to a person's consciousness without like presenting the novel as being like fully supportive of that, you know? So it's just like, it, it creates hopefully some narrative dissonance between the, the reader and the perspective of the book to have Miles look at that and then be like, okay, good to know. Like I've you know, got to keep going. And then he ultimately doesn't change his behavior as a result of it. You know, it's, it's funny too, because like speaking of that very projection, you know, Miles has this daughter who's lashing out in all these ways, sort of even scaring like Miles himself. She hurts her sister at one mm-hmm. point in the name of play, but Miles sees past it. You, you write, it, it was cruelty. It was cruelty, plain and simple. And when his 10-year-old daughter had realized that would upset them, she changed her line. And that's what bothered him most. His daughter was aware of her own cruelty, and that's what she was trying to hide. Is Miles concerned about his... I mean, I guess he's sort of also answer this question, but speaking of that very projection, is Miles concerned about his daughter's morality or reflection on his own fears about his own morality or fear of what he's seen other people are capable of? Um, I mean, again, it's like, he's always kind of navigating how responsible he is for what's in front of him and like ultimately doing uh, a lot of like mental gymnastics to, to worm his way out of accepting responsibility um, and so like with his daughter, he, yeah, in that, in the later scene, when they're in Texas, he's sort of confronted by, uh, something that he goes back and forth between thinking is like, um, you know, dangerous or demented or like sign of some kind of problem, uh, or is actually like a kind of like admirable strength on her part, you know, that she is like able to stand up in this way, uh, that he couldn't, you know, to save like when the ants are sort of attacking her younger sister. And then she like goes on this uh, vengeful quest against the ant hive and their queen. Um, and I think with his daughter, he's, he does kind of go back and forth of like, am I scared of her? Is there something, uh, that I'm doing wrong that's causing this? Is, is there even a problem here? Um, and I think part of that is just like (laughs) my relationship to my own parents, like studying them and just like their kind of like relationship to our behavior was never very, um, like prescriptive or fully like, you know, like, like I always imagine parents being these, like we've kind of figured out to some degree what the world is and like what we need to show you and in it and how and talk to you about in it in a way that like prepares you to encounter it. Our parents were not like, they were very loving, you know, but they were not really like preparing us to encounter the world in any way. And when we would create chaos as a result of being unprepared, it kind of struck them in such a personal way, you know, like it was often met with just like, 
total confusion, horror, disgust, like, like just how could this be happening? What does it say about me? You know, like this earth shattering um, personal experience rather than this kind of like uh, perfect, you know, sort of like, like almost think of like the way that like a therapist functions where it's like, I will come to you in this like sort of indifferent setting um, and like, and perfectly sort of like account for what you're presenting me within the larger context of like, human experience in psychology. Um, and you're always like, isn't that what parents do? And I was like, definitely not mine. Um, but like what I detected was in that was a kind of um, their own humanity and their own fragility and their own vulnerability and a desire for like their kids to be expressions of good. It goes back to the Miles and the civil rights lawyer where it's like, if your kids are doing well and seem happy and healthy and people like them and they're, you know, doing whatever it is in the world that makes the world give them external feedback, like that's positive, you know, be like good in good grades or, you know, in my case, it was like, it was in a band that was kind of popular. Um, and like, if they're doing all those things, then that like somehow made seem to make my parents feel like they were good, you know, <laughs> like they were happy and proud and they were like, that we are good people. And then we were doing bad things. It was like, we are, are we bad people or, or it's like, oh no, you, that's you. You know, like I'm over here. I can't understand how you could possibly act like that. Right. So like, that's you. And I don't know, you better figure that out. Um, so anyway, yeah, like that whole thing with Miles and his kids really comes from a place of like thinking, just like observing my own parents growing up and the impact of our actions from uh, the more like alarming behavior to the more like completely satisfying and like elating behavior. Um and yeah, and Miles is always looking to advocate responsibility. So he's always looking to like, just be like, well, my daughter's like fucked up or terrifying, or maybe not. Maybe she's actually like more with it than I am. And like, so I've kind of done everything right in whatever, <laughs> you know, like if she's, per if she's been more prepared for the world than I am, then I must be a really good dad, you know, like. <laughs> That's so interesting because it's super not the answer I was expecting. In fact, one of my questions was, going to be like, what are your thoughts on modern parenting? Which is a broad question for sure. But I found this novel refreshing in that obviously there is, you know, a, a good meditation on the marriage, but it's less of the focal point. It's generally, and which is generally such a focal point in contemporary fiction. Um, but if anything, child rearing is sort of what's really put under the lens here. You know, even his relationship to his, to his wife is, if anything, um, while challenged, he sort of always comes back to his daughters and like being in the shared, you know, like ship of are we, how are we going to cultivate and make these people? And I've made this choice to do it with you. So, so hearing you talk about your, I sort of was, my guess was that you may be a young parent and these were thoughts like you were navigating, but perhaps right. it's actually you, you know, thinking about your parents or both, I guess is what I wanted to know. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm not a parent, which is kind of uh, interesting. I feel like um, I just did this event in San Diego and the the interviewer was this great writer, uh, Julia Dixon Evans. And um, she, uh, when we were going in, she has got two kids and she was like, oh, like, are you a parent? Because like the parenting stuff is so like, like real in like a scary way and i was that meant a lot to me i was not like someone who just like feels like oh i just like killed it you know you get very nervous about like getting the stuff right especially when you haven't done it for sure um and yeah and it's like it, i have a lot of friends who have kids i really like kids i like interact with kids a lot but i mean it's mostly the study 
just from the years of like trying to understand my own parents and having parents who were like extremely available emotionally, you know, like they were not these grand mysteries. They were like, their selves were fully on display. Um, and so, and that's a weird thing. And it's a great thing on the one hand when you're, you know, a young writer and you're like, I want, I don't spend my life being like, what are human emotions? It's like, I'm very familiar with them uh, from an early age. Uh, but it's also kind of crazy as a kid when you're like, well, I'm supposed to be the sort of like emotionally volatile one. And you're supposed to be the kind of like the context setter, you know, or something. Um, but that was not the, not the case of my experience. So I thought a lot about parenting going in this book, um, and parents and like, you know, my own thought about like, just like, if I were in this situation, how would I think? And I found so many times that I would wound up thinking in ways that were like pretty mappable onto like thoughts that my parents had shared with me from their experience. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of it. Like my mom's a teacher and my dad was like a youth correctional uh, psychologist at a youth correctional facility. So they also like work with kids and think about parenting a lot and have a lot of language for all of that. So that's a huge, huge influence on the book and probably why those sections have um have something to them if they do you know <laughs> um, can you describe what the egg is exactly to future readers of yours yeah uh so the the egg is a a device that allows for like 100 percent virtual immersion in a virtual space um and so it's like it's sort of when we meet miles he works for a vr company that is is definitely in the near future in terms of its like uh, abilities, um, but but similar to what the to um, equipment that we're used to, you know, headsets and, and sort of like triangulating cameras and um, and as their like software and their games get their ex- original experiences get more and more popular, but also more mappable by the competition, they have to start like innovating within the hardware space, and so they ultimately through a bunch of stuff that's explained in the book wind up designing this this product called the egg which uh ideally accounts for like uh you know people were like wandering off roofs and stuff like that trying to play their vr games and uh there was just like a kind of a sense of like the 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 potential of this needs to be like brought into the home in a more cohesive way anyway um so yeah, so the egg is a fully immersive VR experience. You sit in this device, it closes around you, it moves your arms and legs for you. It uh, works with predictive speed. So it knows there's a little bit of AI in it in the sense that it can be like, based on these certain like criteria and these certain sets, we will start to map what we assume you are imagining. And so that it kind of like realizes your thoughts and desires and uh like imagined scenarios as the thoughts are coming to you. Um, the other thing that's different about the egg is initially the VR experiences are customizable by the player, the individual user. And as they develop, this is part of, this is another example of Miles' abdication of responsibility. Users get, users start getting kind of called out for the way they're using their VR experiences and what they're building um, and start, you know, crying censorship against the company and accusing the company of uh, keeping their own experiences that are equally questionable um, or offensive 
up while deleting user experiences. And it's sort of a bad faith argument because the users are making like very dark shit. Um, but it is one of those instances of a bad faith, bad faith argument that like successfully adopts the language of the people they're going against. Right. So it's like, well, now what are you going to do? Um, and so Miles' solution is we take out the piece of this that's individual users in, in experiences and we make it shared reality, something like multiplayer, something where you can be in an experience altering your reality as you see fit, but then someone else could step in and tweak it slightly too. Someone else could step in and tweak it slightly too. And the kind of a line is that like ultimately it will be like, you know, Reddit or Twitter or something where like the best content will like surf, rise to the top um, and everyone will agree on that. Clearly not the case in those spaces in a way it's not, not being the case in this particular space. Um, but it gives Miles the opportunity of being like, well, if stuff's getting changed and you feel censored, that's the y'all. Like, it's not the company because the users have total control. So, like, you know, just work, work it out amongst yourselves, you know, which is constantly what you see, I feel like, in these tech companies that are like, yeah, we built this thing for all these people to do this specific task. And it's created this, like, hellscape. Uh, but that's really more about improper user use right. than we're just a technical service, you know, right. like, and they just like wash their hands of it and step away, you know? I mean, so similarly, um, you know, Miles's claim to fame is this game called The Ghost Lover. Um, and the appeal, mm-hmm. I say this with full respect, but the appeal apparently is supposed to involve the thrill of being haunted by an ex. I don't get it. <laughs> what what is the thrill? How could this be a thrill? What do you think would be cuz you know, it's it's a successful game in, in in this book and what do you think is appealing about that? Like why would anyone want to play that game? That's a great question. I mean, it's so what it does is it recreates your life exactly as it is, only it adds the the haunting of an ex of a ghost of an ex-lover. And I think the like part of the appeal and uh, maybe this is like making a lot of assumptions, but it's like, I think they're like, we carry these, our exes around with us in these, in all these different ways and in our thoughts. And it's like, what if they were just kind of like back in my life, but in this like controlled and distanced way. Um, and like, I could feel, you know, feel their presence again. Um, so there is that kind of like, uh, I don't know, like wish fulfillment of having the relationship back in some way. Um but also the idea of like, for me, oh, now I'm going to get like super personal. But um, for me, it's like all of my exes, I feel like I have uh, like a lot of like love for still, you know. And there is a weird thing uh, where it's like, you know, I have like good relationships with most of them, if not all of them. I'm trying to like leave any room for anyone who would not describe it as a good relationship. Uh, but it feels like generally positive. Um and different degrees of like closeness after the fact but like it is just a weird kind of aspect of life where like they can be such a huge part of your life and like you know, the whole like that um <clears throat> Fleetwood Mac song you know um and you know I built my life around you uh, and then they're gone and so it's like well this would be this controlled it's almost like a way of like remembering them in like a kind of controlled like personal way that doesn't actually involve like reinserting yourself in their life like high fidelity style or something you know um and so i think that's part of the appeal i mean also it's like i think there's a kind of an ego piece of it like people getting this kind of like uh thing that's gone back in their life in this like yeah again controlled way um but 
I don't know. I also thought of it a little bit in the way that like, I don't know if you have this, but you know, when, like when you, there are certain songs you listen to um, at certain periods in your life and like, or that you have a certain feelings associated with. And like, I play, there's like a whole, I have like a whole, like not a playlist, but I, I know where they are. Like all the songs that can make me feel X way or can make me remember Y moment or can put me back into certain head spaces or emotional places that I like want to be. And so I was just thinking about like that in, in that pure sense of like, oh, I can just like turn on, you know, turn on this game and then have like this very specific, like otherwise lost emotional psychological experience that was so positive in certain ways. Like at some certain points, I assume every relationship has some <laughs> some nugget of like something in it that felt uh, worth worth doing. Um, so yeah, I think that, that was kind of the thinking. I mean, also it was, there's a, it's one of the first ones that like grabs people. And so that was part of the thinking of just like the sort of gold rush aspect of it, where it was like, everyone's boring initially in the, uh, when the company launches a platform, it's just like a canvas. It's just a sandbox that people can go into and do whatever they want with. And people just start kind of boring themselves. And so the company's like, how do we solve this? When they're like our solution is we start making these original experiences that like kind of jumpstart the user's imagination. And so this ghost lover is like one of the earlier ones of that. And it's one of the less extreme versions of that. Oh, I could probably just keep rambling about this, but it's also like, um, you know, like you look at the way like people use the internet or people use like all these devices largely in a way that feels to me like somewhat like self uh, not aggrandizing, but self-reflective. It's like a little bit of a mirror. You, know, you want to see pieces of yourself. You want to see um, uh, your, you know, the customer customizable version of reality. So this was like one that was just like, here's a piece of my life given back to me versus like, you know, I'm in a race car or whatever, which is like, can be fun. But like the more that's me in it and the more that this experience is like reminding me of me and of certain things I like and like bringing feelings and blah, blah, blah back, the more I'll like keep coming back to it. So that was kind of the thinking there, but I don't know. Yeah. That's so funny because I mean, you know, drag me like, like, like you <laughs> me, my own, I don't know, whatever it's, 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 it's a very good answer. And it just like had me thinking when you were talking about the playlist thing, like, of course I know exactly that feeling of bookmarking certain emotions with certain songs. And it's just funny because literally this past weekend I, I work at a bookstore and I was just like alone in a bookstore and I like, I tweeted something dumb, but I was like, are you sad, Srudi? Or are you just like alone in a bookstore listening to Mazzy Star? And like, really, I'm just like <laughs> cultivating an experience, right? Like I'm actively choosing an almost like masochistic experience of like listening to these sad love songs that clearly remind me of like a sad loving experience. And I'm doing that to myself. And I... I actively sought that out, which is exactly the appeal of what, what the appeal would be of the ghost lover, I guess. It's like, to me, when I first read it, I was like, well, it just sounds like going to be a bad time. Who wants to, who wants to download this app? This is going to be a bad time, but we actively seek out bad times. Um, So yeah, that's, that's such a thrill to hear you, hear you talk about it like that. Um, uh, At some point in the book, I'm sort of just, it's a, disjointed out of context but obviously thematically ties in together Uh, a playwright muses there's no algorithm for the wakeful human heart would you agree (laughs) yeah definitely right okay Um, yeah (laughs) end of podcast no but so but in 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 
it, it, with that in mind, um, Miles says he initially thought marriage would be like a band and then sort of starts talking, you know, at this one point he's like musing to himself and he sort of start, starts thinking about being a young man and in an actual band. And in this moment, he says he finally saw it for what it was, that, that experience of being young and, and going and living that life. Um, and what he says is what he sees it for what it was is ir- irreproducible. What in writing in fiction for you is irreproducible? Oh, wow. Uh, huge question. Right. And I also ask um, this, but yeah. I ask this in a thematic sort of way too, because you're clearly trying to explore human being in, in this, no- human behavior in this novel. This is what novelists do, which involves a bit of premeditating. And I guess this is something, like I said, all novelists do. So they're sort of guessing how a person, they think a person would or might behave in a particular situation. Aren't they basing mm-hmm. this off a kind of algorithm in this way? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think if human thought can be like described metaphorically as algorithmic um, is really like a kind of like a, a modern question in the sense, cause it's like our, now I, there's a truth to it, you know, it reveals something about the way humans think and act. Um, but it's also a truth that's like, uh, well, we have this new light of this new device. We have the, we have the light of the algorithm now. Mm-hmm. And like when we shine it on the human, it kind of organizes itself around that light, you know, mm-hmm. but as soon as we have like some other, new tool or some other new wake you know something that's influencing reality we can start to see we can start to draw metaphors between like thinking and that and it's like i feel like there's some this is poet tommy pico uh who is really great and i was talking to him one time and i'm totally gonna screw this up but he was talking about how um he studied like molecular chemistry uh but he was talking about how like the model for the atom changed in relationship to like as the model for the like solar system changed it was like, oh, it's like all around the earth. And then it was right. like, okay, so we think of the atom as grouping in this way. Right. And it was like, oh, now it's all around the sun. So we modeled the atom has reshifted. And so it's actually all around this other aspect. Um, and so that like is a very, like the way we reorganize around new concepts as they introduce themselves in our own thinking is interesting to me because I feel like it kind of speaks to the infinite uh unknowability of the human or something, you know? <laughs> and so it's like... Um, um, and that's not to say that we're so complicated or or incredible. I guess that's why I wanted to start with what in writing in fiction for you is irreproducible. Yeah. And so this, I was just about to loop back to this right. because, um, and it's like, I, I don't know how helpful an answer this will be. Um, but I feel like to me, the honest answer to that question is the, the result of the reader's relationship to encountering the book is the unreproducible thing. Um, And I don't know if I'm saying that exactly right, but I think I'm getting it. So it's like, there's no, like, and I found that, so this is my seventh book. And it's like, every time people read the book, it's like all the conversations are always very interesting, but like people bring such really different perspectives. And sometimes it's like, wow, that's all made up, you know, right. <laughs> which is kind of interesting in itself. Um, and then other times you're like, wow, I was not thinking that, but it all lines up. It's like, it was totally there. And other times you're like, oh, that was exactly what I was thinking. And you completely got it from the text. And and they're all very interesting, compelling to me, but it does speak to the fact that like when we encounter like, a work of art, work of the imagination, especially one that's not, like I never try to write uh, a definitive like idea where it's just like, this is the way things are. It's always like, this is what Miles is thinking and how he's arrived at this thought. And generally 
I try to write characters who are like transparently self-serving enough that the reader can understand that like whatever grand conclusion they've arrived at is partially the product of their, you know, human machine and not necessarily the book being like, this is the truth about what it's like to be a father, you know? Right. Um, but then when, yeah, then when people encounter it, there's this kind of magical thing that happens where it's like, I had all this stuff that I was like trying to kind of get in there or like communicate or, uh, or feeling at the time. And some of that gets communicated and some of it gets mutated and some of it gets completely overlooked in favor of X, you know? Uh, and, you know, it's that like, it's not the novel, it's not the reader, but a secret third thing idea <laughs> where it's like, there's this kind of magical alchemy that, 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 that gets created. Um, and it's uh, very like, fascinating to me and completely curious to me and it feels like the kind of thing that can never be predicted or um totally fully described um and so that's the unreproducible thing just because it changes every single time it's like when you look at um like this i used to be i don't know like concerned with the idea of greatness you know Mm. uh and i guess i am still to some degree but I remember being in this class, I was reading all, I was reading all this Shakespeare and I was reading all this Melville because those are like things that like, young men who are concerned with greatness read, you know, <laughs> and, and young women too. But I feel like there's a lot of dudes talking about Moby Dick. Um, but like, uh, I remember reading all those things and like in the beginning of each, you know, you get these like Oxford editions or whatever that had all these essays um, like over the course of time that were like, you know, this book is about Protestantism. This book is about uh science versus religion this book is about is a feminist text this book is about the avant-garde i'm talking about uh, moby dick now and it was like you know it's just every generation had this new brilliant mind that could come in and like reorganize all of the components and draw this new sort of conclusion it was ultimately about like kind of claiming the text as the definitive text of their particular sort of like ideological project and it almost it almost always works because they're like really smart people and that book has so much in it and I was like, I think there's a, a piece of greatness that is like that this work of art can be kind of read adapted for each generation to make their own. Um, and there's like something in it where it's like the malleability, the flexibility, and maybe even some would call it the like incomplete or broken nature of that thing that allows every, yeah, every new sort of ideological group to come in and be like, no, this is our text. This is perfectly about what's going on now. Uh, and you can look at it closely and realize that it was intentionally so, you know, <laughs> like, um, and that, yeah. Is that your aim with users? Uh, <laughs> no, because it started to feel, it stopped feeling like something that could be done intentionally. You know, it started feeling like, what I really have to do is work on making the book as good as it can be. And, and that has um, just a kind of like, you know, a pretty like personally defined uh, r- rubric to me. Um, and that, like trying to make it something that speaks to everyone, you're not going to make something that speaks to anyone. Um, but there is this sort of space and the kind of like that idea of like the private, the personal is, you know, universal, where it's like within that, you can create opportunities for people to, to relate and to and to you know do the very thing that the original experiences are kind of designed to do like jumpstart their thinking and their imagination and then you leave enough in there for them to find the artist to believe that there's some intentionality in there uh and yeah i think that's what i was aiming for with users um and it's hard you know when you're writing something that's like 
that was my, one of my biggest fears with users, actually, because it's of all my books, it's the closest to reality. It's the one that invites the most comparisons to contemporary life and to, to myself. I mean, it's like a character who you could very easily just be like, oh, that must be what he's like, you know? Um, and uh, that is really easily avoided if you're like, well, no, and I'm writing about like two cowboys in the Wild West or like, you know, boarding school boys in this sort of like timeless Gothic castle. Um, but once you start writing in a world that invites those comparisons, um, I think a lot of windows and doors get closed in terms of like the ability to kind of um, windows and doors get closed that like would otherwise be open in a more experimental work. Um, and so it was a, a challenge to to keep the book experimental and uh, and to have those sort of like depths uh, while still recognizing that there was, you know, I was going to be, I was going to draw comparisons to reality. So I had to also like account for reality. Couldn't just like make this totally completely separate thing without people being like, ah, it just wouldn't work that way. So yeah, that was the, yeah, that was a big tough challenge in the book. And I feel like I've been talking forever about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's really fair. Um, I, I also think that we could, you know, talk forever about that. It, it's sort of, I've never written a novel and, and there's a reason for that. Um, in terms of like what I, what I imagine is even the whole process. I want to ask you in thinking about youth and shallowness, Miles describes it as the ability to feel things uh, deeply uh, and then forget them, to hurry from one moment to the next, taking life as for granted as possible. It was in a waste, he decides it was the point. I'm wondering if you can say more here. Yeah. I mean, I think he's sort of grappling with that idea of like youth is wasted on the young. Um, and like, just being like, oh, people think if I could go back as an old person, I would like, as an older person, I would like really take advantage of this time. And he's just saying, I think there's something to what they would call a waste. That is kind of the point of youth. Like you can just, you're exploring the world in a very like direct and open and vulnerable way. And that means kind of, again, like constantly reorganizing yourself around the things that are presented to you and the things that are around you. And in some sense, as we get older, we start to calcify and that we stop being uh, open in that way. And there are, you know, there are benefits to that. There are like, there are rewards to that, to singularity of focus or to like, at least like a slightly, <laughs> I'm speaking from experience now where I'm just like, yeah, the older I've gotten, the like, kind of harder I've tried to like see things through and that's been good. <laughs> but Miles is kind of like, yeah, I think maybe. Again, again, like his lines, his line of thinking is always letting himself off the hook because he's like, it's probably better if you rush through the world without really like thinking about what you're doing and just like en encounter the next thing and then go from there versus like trying to build some kind of continuity or like get or like maintain a sense of, a sense of responsibility to every encounter you have. Um, but there is some kind of truth to it for me, and this is like also try like how I tried to write this character a little bit to be like I don't just give him like ideas I think are dumb, but give him ideas that I think have something to them that like ultimately he uses self-servingly, so we can understand that this is not the final like, ideological landing point. You know, this is like a tool, which is you know I think a way people navigate the world. Like our thoughts are never final. You know, they're always just like tools for get us through things and to the next thing and help us write novels. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's also just like a kind of, like I resent the idea a little bit that kids and teenagers and the youth should be 
uh, more focused, more purposeful, more exactly more just like more like like when I see parents be like, do this, kid, it's good. You know, I generally feel this sense of like, like you, what you're doing is kind of modeling, teaching them to like to mirror that in, in, in almost as a way of accessing affection or need. And so the mirroring becomes the thing versus like understanding why they're doing that. Like, it's not like a crystallization of their person. It's more like a, a thing in the way, you know, it, it's just cyclical, right? So mm. it's like, if, if you're teaching them that this is path to purpose, if this is what value looks like, then they're going to mm-hmm. build that and aspire toward that and seek that in other people, potentially their future children and so on. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of copy pasting how a person should be or how a youth should be, what, what a time period in life should be instead of sort of what it is. Right. Right. Exactly. That's, a, that's the, that's the great point. Like it's always dated is the thing, right. you know, <laughs> like it's always old information and it's almost always things that parents like were told to do when they were kids. Uh, and that they're just like, why can't you do X? And like, it's really like their old feeling of being told, like, why can't you do X? You know? Um, yeah, exactly. But it's always like, you should be thinking and acting in this particular way, which was perhaps relevant 27 years ago or 35 years ago, whatever, when I was younger, it almost in a way does a disservice to the kids of awareness of now, which I think is the, is the valuable part of what Miles is describing in that passage. Just like that much, like a much better awareness of now and the ability to reorganize yourself around that versus the, the need to, prevent yourself from reorganizing, <laughs> which is what Miles does. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. This is great. Those are all my questions. I, I appreciate your time and your thoughtful answers. Uh, listeners, you can pick up a copy of Users at St. Henry Books um, or your local indie bookshop. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.